Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. What if we had a show about solutions? You know, a repair manual for the real world. Not the same old left versus right. I am right, right. and you are wrong. Boring. (laughs) Yeah, something new. Yeah, something new. How to make the world a better place. Yeah. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? Today, getting our country and our world back in balance. Two in three Americans are overweight. One third of the population is obese, according to the Centers for Disease Control. And we're still recovering from a financial crisis, which was largely caused by easy money. Many consumers borrowed way too much, and the banks encouraged them. In addition, many of us are working too hard. We're sleeping too little. Our lives are out of balance. The environment is also threatened by the way we live. There's an abundance of stuff. Welcome to How Do We Fix It, where we talk about solutions. I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. And today's expert guest is Dr. Peter Weibrow, director of the Semmel Institute for Neuroscience and Human Behavior at UCLA, joining us via Skype from Los Angeles. Dr. Weibrow's new book is The Well-Tuned Brain, Neuroscience and the Life well lived. Dr. Weibrow, in this book, you you argue that our society is kind of out of tune. It's a little bit out of whack. And in in this and in some of your previous work, you talk about um, the way that our brains are really um, running on a reward system. uh, What you say is uh, ancient desires and uh, responding to ancient threats. Can you give us a little background on what you mean by that? Well, the human brain actually is is very, very ancient, except for the part that makes us human, which is quite recent. And so we have a hybrid inside our heads, and it's not well-tuned for affluence and opportunity, and it scrambles our ability to think straight. We're very much short-term in our vision of the world, so being focused on the immediate was very, very important if we were going to survive. Those things are still within us. So we're in an age of affluence now, but you write that our brain is programmed for scarcity. What, what does that mean? It means that we are much better when we have very little because we're very good at figuring out ways of obtaining more. But when you have all sorts of things, these have eradicated the need to wait and to be thoughtful about what we do to catch that creature that's in the woods so that we can eat it. We don't really think about those things anymore. We just go to the grocery store and pick up whatever we need. There's a mismatch between the extraordinary 
culture we've created and the way in which our brains work. So we're, we're set up to, you know, catch that rabbit or hunt for that antelope and geared to put a lot of intensity in that. So when you can just go and open the refrigerator, we don't always know when to call it quits. Yeah, that's right. So what, what you're saying is, is the way we live today is very different from the way traditionally human beings lived. Our brains are not properly equipped to deal with what we've got right now. Yes, the older ancient part of the brain, the core of the brain, does not match the current experience that we find in our extremely affluent culture. So what are some examples of that? Let's let's look at, for instance, obesity, uh, which obesity rates are very high. I think one-third of Americans are r- called morbidly obese by the Centers for Disease Control. Is that evidence of, of the problem? And, and if so, why? Yes, it is evidence of the problem, but you can add to that debt. You can add to that environmental concerns, which is what you were talking about at the very beginning. But obesity is an interesting one because everybody recognizes it. It's very obvious. When you present somebody with something that's immediately available, you don't have to uh, worry about planning for the future, then we tend to eat it. We're actually short-term in our vision of the world. Even if you are wanting to lose weight, if we were talking about this in the abstract, everybody would say, yes, I should cut out cakes and beer. But when you're faced with it, you forget all that stuff. And in some ways, our habits are the same, even when it comes to consuming data and entertainment. Uh, You know, you talk about this world that's just flooded with information and sensation. How is that affecting us? It's exactly the same. The natural phenomenon now is that you walk down the street and everybody is walking towards you looking at a small handheld tablet, yes? Mm -hmm. And so now, not only has the culture changed, but we're completely addicted to the immediacy. How many times do you check your email a day? You're probably 40. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There you go. So uh, 40 times a day you're checking your email. Well, that's um, perhaps because you think you might miss something if you don't get that little text. But most of what you check on your email is junk, yes? Your intimate friends might write to you once a day if you're lucky. I, I don't think that's true for Jim, but it's certainly true for me. <laughs> but but I do think I, 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 I can totally see sometimes you get that little – that tiny little rush of excitement. What is this? I got to know whether yeah, good that's or bad. Right. That what little... is it? What, what's new? You know, yeah. what's new? So mm-hmm. some people even keep their telephones on. In fact, a large number of people, I think it's something like 40%, keep their telephone on at night so that if anything comes in, they wake up and find out what it is. That's a great prescription for having a bad night's sleep. Let me ask you about sleep because the National Sleep Foundation polling says one in five American adults report not getting more than six hours of sleep a night. Do you see the lack of sleep as part of this problem of dealing with an everything now society? Yes, absolutely. One of the interesting things that you bring up is the shorter you sleep, the heavier you are, because it's all tied together by the stressful life we have begun to lead, because we're not we're not made up for this. We're, you know, we like to run and do all sorts of interesting things. But at the moment, we do very few of those things except fiddle with our technology and run from one place to another because we're fearful that we'll lose our jobs if we don't do that. When, in fact, compared to, you know, the Paleolithic peoples, um, we have so little to be fearful of uh, in terms of a real genuine 
life-threatening stress in our lives. We live in this world of abundance, of plenty, uh, and yet somehow we've managed to make ourselves more anxious than ever. You've talked a little bit about the, the brain's uh, reliance on certain kinds of habits as contributing to that phenomenon. Can you talk to us a little bit about the, the habit-driven brain? Yes, the purpose of the new book is really to help people understand themselves and recognizing that this is a world we now live in, what can we do about it? How can we fix it, to use the um, motif of your show? So one of the things you have to learn first, and the first half of the book is devoted to this, is who do you think you are? Well, we tend to be fascinated by novelty, we're socially competitive, and we're very interested in the short term. So if you ask yourself, what does that tell you about yourself? It means that you've got to beware of the fact that you are likely to always run to the new and go away from the long-term plan. That comes back into habits because what happens is that we learn our habits very early on. I walk to work here in Los Angeles, believe it or not, but one of the interesting things... One of things, the very few people who, who does, right? <laughs> exactly. I, when I first came to L.A., people would stop and ask if I was in, in trouble or if my car had broken down. <laughs> what do they but, do now? They just shake their heads. Well, I think most of, the, most of them have got used to me walking past their houses. I walk through a small suburban area to the university, and some of them actually know who I am now, and they say, oh, you're the fellow who walks past my door at 7 o'clock in the morning, aren't you? And I say, yes, that's right. But coming back to your point, the habits drive who we are. Now, there's this old thing about watch your habits because they become your character. But habits are formed very, very early on. And if you learn to eat French fries at the age of 18 months, you're probably going to be eating them at the age of 80 if you live that long. But the problem is that many of our habits now are beginning to be counterproductive. And so we end up having habits which are self-destructive. Let, let me push back a little bit though. I mean, somebody who's fat or somebody who's overweight knows that. I mean, they know that they eat too much. I mean, just because you know your habits, does it really help you that much? It doesn't, no. You put your finger on exactly the problem because coming back to what we were talking about before, your habits are very efficient and wired into you. So what you've learned you can intellectually sit down and say, you know, I really should lose some weight. But then when you get in front of that dessert, as we were talking about earlier, you eat it because what takes over is this automatic part of the brain, which is tied to an area of the brain called the basal ganglia, which is subconscious, essentially pre-conscious. The lesson is that we therefore have to pay very special attention to how we rear young people because if we ignore them and give them an iPad because it's just easier for them to play with these wonderful dancing colors on their iPad, then you're actually doing them a disservice because they are not going to learn to concentrate. Most of the tasks of childhood, there are two of them fundamentally. One of them is to learn how to concentrate and secondly, to learn how to command yourself in circumstances where it's better to think to the long term than the short term. Well, let, me, will, let me jump ahead, in. Sorry. Let me jump in on that, Dr. Weibrock. We want to focus on solutions. So, what's your guidance? And we can start kind of on the individual level or the parent, um, the child rearing level. But so, how do we sort of rechannel these ancient pathways that are geared towards immediate rewards and, and sensation? 
Well, first you have to realize that you're living, we are living in a very complicated culture, which is driven entirely by the market. One of the important things that's happened to us is that when the modern markets were invented back in the 18th century, scarcity abounded. Most people had, you know, a couple of sticks of furniture in their house, and probably that's what they made themselves. But now there's a lot more. And so we've fallen into the trap where we are all being induced, all of us, every moment to buy more because we have to keep the economy going. It's changed from the economy feeding us to us feeding the economy. So that's one of the fundamental things that we're up against. We're really walking up a hill. And we, unless we understand that, then we're not going to be able to solve some of these problems. But what about the need to connect with others? Is that something that's important in dealing with this problem? Yes, it is, because the most important thing that parents can do for their children is to help them with these two things that I mentioned earlier, the ability to pay attention and also the ability to think through to the future. In other words, I'm not going to give you that chocolate bar right now because we're going home. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. For dinner, you have to hold yourself until we get home and have dinner together. That all comes out of the attachment issue. But attachment is the thing that then enables trust to be built. Unless the child becomes attached and trusts the parents, one or the other, who are, who are helping them, they never begin to get to the point where they can be aware and happy that they are safe. And it's only when they're safe that they are then able to begin to use their own imagination and to validate the world by thinking about things in a careful way. So attachment is actually the thread that runs through everything. And it's what holds our society together. In an environment with such shaky marriages and such a, a rise in single parent um, families, does it concern you that more and more children are growing up in environments where attachment is possibly somewhat more difficult um, to attain than in a, in a more uh, traditional family-based culture? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, you see, this, this is, some people say to me, what is this book about? And I say, it's a mystery story. And they say, what do you mean? I say, well, I thought it was about neuroscience. And I say, well, yes, but it is a mystery, is it not? We know all these things. We know how to rear children in, a, in, in an environment where they will thrive. We know about ourselves. We know we're short-term discounters. We know we're greedy. We know, we know all these things. And yet we do not translate them into social policy. America is the only country, the only rich country in the world that does not have the opportunity in a prescribed way for somebody to take, say, 
three months off after their child is born and to get to know them and have a job to go back to afterwards. So that's, that's, something, that, that, that's something that government should do. Are there other actions that you think government should well, but take? The government is us, my friend. We are, we, if, if we do not recognize that we feel that this is important in our society, in the way in which the social character is built, then we will never solve this problem. You will be absolutely right. It's a runaway train. You know, in the book, there are many, many stories about individual people. They're all completely normal people. They're all striving to do certain things that we are talking about here. And the only hope we have is that these individuals will begin to coalesce. And through programs like yours, where we talk about how you fix things, and rather than throwing up our hands and saying everything is wrong, we will slowly coalesce these elements into something that makes a social movement so that the social contract is revitalized because at the moment the social glue which is the 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 stuff we've been talking about is eroding rapidly talk about the environment and and whether that is linked to this problem of a society as you see it that is that is too much about uh, consumerism and uh, spending too much money sleeping too little being too insecure in your work does that have an impact on the environment Yes, it does, because it's exactly the same common core. What we're talking about is behavior. It's not the technology. It's not the environment. It's the way we behave towards it. We have forgotten who we are. And if we realize who we are in terms of the way in which we behave, then we can shift our behavior and we can find a collective solution, which I know in America is a whole terrible thing about socialism. I'm not talking about socialism. I'm talking about a social contract that works and that is an engagement among us which enables us to go forward. And so the thrust of this book is to say, you can take care of yourself. It's just a matter of knowing who you are and then learning how to live. And in doing that, you will be an example to everybody else. And that's the best fix-it solution I can think of. So I'm intrigued. You were talking about this social contract, our need to rebuild some of this sense of community. And yet, you know, suggesting that it doesn't necessarily require a big top-down socialistic government program. I'm really intrigued with this idea of how can we rebuild on a local community level some of the the sense of community that that many of us perhaps nostalgically imagine from small town life or, you know, an earlier type of society. What are some examples of people who are doing that today? Well, there are many of them. The chapter on Habitat that I write about in The Well-Tuned Brain speaks to the fact that people are intrigued by living together. If you bring people together and give them an opportunity to interact with each other, they have very much happier lives. Driving long distances like one has to do in L.A. to get to a place of work, for example, is is extremely destructive. People spend an hour and a half or two hours in their car each day. And so I think coming back to a built environment which enables people to walk which enables people to ride bicycles, which enables people to take trams, all the sorts of things that, for example, you think of Portland, Oregon for this. They've they've worked really hard to do that. And many other uh, areas in the country are starting to do that. It saves all sorts of uh, uh, issues in regards to the environment that you were talking about just now. And it creates, believe it or not, a much happier place for people to live. Those areas are pleasurable to people because they like to have that sort of interaction. And, so and that kind of scale. That is very important. But it's a bottom-up thing. It's a bottom-up thing, as you were saying. It's not top-down. You can't legislate this stuff 
by a government. It has to come from the bottom up. It's up to us. Dr. Peter Weibrow, thanks very much for joining us. Yes, thank you so much. How do we fix it? A pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Jim, I think the big takeaway from what we've heard from Peter Weibrow is that all of us are attracted, even excited, by by the short-term gain, by instant gratification. And that when we are, it's important to take a step back and realize that our brains are wired for instant gratification when sometimes going long-term rather than short-term makes a lot better sense. Yeah, you know, our world is so different from the hunter-gatherers that we evolved from, you know, out there, you know, having to chase down antelopes and and go team up and go kill mastodons. And I think his core thesis that we have to understand that brain, that primitive brain and what drives it. And, And I think a lot of times in society, we try to deny some of those primitive impulses that we have uh, that could be interpreted as greed or or other things. So I, I think that his work is very important and very useful in terms of that. And I think, you know, and it's something you can apply in your individual life, saying, you know, I want that soda because when we were evolving, sugar was hard to come by and you and you consumed as much as you could when anytime you got your hands on it. Today, it's everywhere. So you need a different set of habits. There's some great research that if you go to the supermarket after having eaten a good meal, that you're much more likely to make sensible food choices. Whereas if you go when you're hungry, you buy that, those extra snacks and those cookies. That's right. Whenever I go shopping when I'm hungry, I always come by with come home with some weird pickles or something yes. that I wouldn't normally buy. So the lesson is if you're aware that you're likely to do that, before you go to the supermarket or before you're making a specific decision, you may make better decisions. Yes, yes. Now, where I, I might um, part with Wybrow, I think it's on some of the broader prescriptions or, or the broader sense that this is the problem with the modern market economy. I mean, to me, the market economy is something that evolved when humans were given the freedom to interact the way they did. It's gotten almost frighteningly good at giving us what we want or what we think we want, but it's not a conspiracy against us. And here and there in the book, I kind of get this feeling that, you know, a capitalist economy is somehow working at odds to us. We can take from it what we want. I mean, that's the essence of being a, a free part of the economy is you can you can buy the, you know, the 57-inch TV or not. Nobody's making you. Yeah, I I do like the idea, though, of the government nudging us, not telling us, not ordering us, but nudging us. I mean, for instance, Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City, calling for a ban on the sale of 20-ounce bottles of soda. There's one part of me that thinks, that's big government. I don't like it. But on the other hand, I, I, I like the idea of suggesting that, wait a minute, maybe we need to think twice before we have a 20-ounce bottle of soda. I, I'm, I'm torn on this. I mean, my wife was a teacher in the South Bronx for a long time, and her kids would show up, up at school with these giant sodas and, and, and stuff. At the same time, to me, it's nanny state stuff. There's got to be a better, more personal way to solve this problem than having the government step in and start banning this kind of food or that kind of, you know, that quantity of food. I, I just think I think that's not the right role for government. Where I think Peter Weibrow's on really strong ground, though, is the idea of building trust, of building community, of coming up with living environments 
where we're more likely to walk to work, where we're more likely to say hi to our neighbor. I mean, if I ruled the world, every house would have a porch, a front porch, mm -hmm. so that people were, you know, facing their neighborhood rather than hiding away from it. Right. And act, but actually, I think, you know, I would argue that that some of those things are on the rise. I mean, he lives in Los Angeles, which is, you know, a city developing the peak of the car oriented era. Um, and, you know, for better or worse. But I think, you know, you can see a return of communal spaces, even things that um, that might seem very commercial, like a Starbucks. You know, Starbucks is a, is a store that doesn't try to get you to buy your product and leave as soon as possible. They want you to linger and hang out and maybe even talk to the person at the next table. So I, I think that we are seeing a return in our societies to uh, to businesses that maybe cater a little bit more to connection. Even, even you know, there's this movement called co-housing where people try to, you know, instead of all living in their own apartments or houses, try to share some common spaces and 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 work together with their neighborhoods in a more communal way. I, I think we're going to see more of that going forward. I'm glad we're being a bit more optimistic about this than Peter Weibrow because I do think that he was a little bit too pessimistic. Every society does have its problems. Ours are too much stress, many people being overweight, many people uh, not sleeping enough. But on the other hand, we do live in a time of abundance compared to our ancestors. I'd rather live today than 100 or 200 years you, ago. You know, there's an awful lot of nostalgia for this supposed wonderful, you know, pre-industrial time. I'll tell you something. You know, half the people were dead. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, you know, a family would have six kids and only two would survive to adulthood. It was not a Rousseauian uh, fairyland. Life was brutal. And, and I think we need to appreciate all the good things that the modern economy has brought to us and then shape it to what to the world we want to see in the future. Well, I hope that in the future you'll be joining us again. The show is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And thanks to Miranda Schaefer, our producer, Denise Barberita, our audio engineer, and the music, which you're hearing right now, is by Lou Stravinsky. Thanks for joining us. See you next week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.